Hi there, and welcome to this week's episode of Here's a Thought, the blogcast for people who overthink. I'm Jan M. Flynn, an author, blogger, and essayist with a habit of overthinking about, well, just about everything. If you're an overthinker yourself, well, welcome to the club. Most of us are here to stay, but sometimes we need a little relief from our hamster wheel brains. So once a week, I offer you a quick break from the voices in your head by listening to the ones in mine. For this week, episode number 29, here's something that I've been wrestling with a lot over the past couple of years, and really, I should have been wrestling with it a lot sooner. How do you know what race you are? If you're white in America, how long does it take you to learn that and what it means? The question of how you know what race you are is one the executive director of the Center for Social Justice at UC Berkeley, Savala Trepsinski, posed to a large, racially diverse group of law students, as she wrote about in a story published in Time magazine in 2021. She's asked this before of students at her talks, and what she's seen is this. Students of color have no problem answering that question. From white students, she hears silence. For much of my life, I would have been just as flummoxed by that question. I was born in the mid-20th century, into a white family, in a white neighborhood, in a white town, in what looked to me like a white country, not that I paid attention to race as a child. Being white, there was no reason to. That changed a little as I went to school and became somewhat more aware, but it remained true that my whiteness, and the invisible bubble of privilege and protection it afforded me, was mostly unknown to me. It was like my skeleton. It supported me without me having to think about it much. Then came the 1960s. I was a preteen girl when our black-and-white console television flickered through images of black people being tear-gassed and beaten with billy clubs by white policemen for no offense other than marching peacefully across the Edmund Pettus Bridge to insist on their right to vote. It was the first time I'd witnessed racial violence. It gave me nightmares. My mother helped comfort me with the insulating thought, that was only happening in the South, in the land of segregation and Jim Crow laws and Ku Klux Klan raids. Those white people were backward, ignorant, hateful, not like us, living as we did in the enlightened environment of the San Francisco Peninsula. We knew better than to behave like that. Besides, there were almost no black people, or, as the adults in my life would have said at the time, Negroes, who lived anywhere near us. So, the problem was moot. I was free to return to happily obsessing over the Beatles. In the 1970s, I discovered racism was at home in my house. Fully launched on my teenage years during the Vietnam War, the era of the generation gap, and a general, if disorganized, awakening social consciousness, it became clear that my father was a card-carrying bigot. He was a real-life Archie Bunker, bewildered and threatened by a changing world, trapped by his own cultural limitations, and having no better resources to address it than through his rage. The day I tried to go to the prom with a black boy, I learned that Dad's racism was only the louder, more easily discounted face of a belief system that held my otherwise sweet, gentle mother every bit as desperately in its grip. Then in the early 80s, I became a mother— like many a first-time mom, I was overcome by the vastness of the experience, the oceanic sense that flooded me at the sight and smell and touch of my baby, and that spilled over to enfold all of humankind. It was a revelation to me 
this all-encompassing, piercing love. This is what my mother felt. And then, this must be what all mothers feel. It was a shock. It wasn't only my baby who was a miracle, a precious and irreplaceable being whose potential was an unfolding gift to be nurtured. It was all babies, all mothers' children. The realization was awesome in the full sense of that word, equal parts inspiring and frightening. One day, while at the park with my toddler son, I watched as he and another tiny boy explored the sandbox together. I looked up to try to catch the eye of his mother, a black woman, seated on the opposite bench. I wanted to be matter, to celebrate our sudden connection. But at that moment, a trio of white men approached, heading toward a nearby table, perhaps on their lunch break. The other mother's face tensed as she bundled up her son and whisked him back into his stroller and out of the park. I wanted to call out to her. No, wait, I wanted to say. Those men won't bother you. This is a nice town. And if they did, I'd put a stop to it. Of course, I said none of those things. Who did I think I was, her white guardian? And what did I know anyway? Maybe she just had to be somewhere. But I looked at those men, who appeared harmless to me, and I looked at my little boy, and my blood chilled. There was an entire litany of lightning-quick assumptions that would attach to her son, utterly different ones than would attach to mine, expectations and biases that would follow both boys into their futures. The difference was, one boy would be uplifted by those assumptions, while the other one would be forced to struggle against their weight. And that was the first time I truly knew I was white. It took that long because, as piercing as my early motherhood awakening to white privilege had been, I didn't do much about it. I had no idea how. And there is no more telling hallmark of such privilege than the ability to neglect it. The world didn't force me to confront the fact of my position in a remorseless social hierarchy constructed of a thousand false beliefs about race, including the belief in race itself. Unlike a person of color, I could go through nearly all my days without thinking about what group I was assigned to from birth, or what the consequences of that assignment were for me and my children. In the late 90s, my son found out he was white. When my son, the former miracle baby and playground toddler, stayed out one night far past his curfew in his junior year of high school, he found me waiting up for him. It didn't take me long to get past his paper-thin excuses and get the real story out of him. He and his football buddies had been driving around shooting at street signs with a paintball gun. A resident had called the police. After a search of their car turned up nothing in the way of alcohol or drugs or even cigarettes, and after a stern talking to, the cops let the young miscreants go home. What do you call a surge of relief mixed with outrage? It landed on me with such force that it took me some moments to catch my breath, time in which my son, as he watched my eyes and nostrils dilate, began to understand that maybe he hadn't escaped the evening unscathed after all. I don't remember everything I said to him. I may have been too angry to make full sense but I know I got it across to him that were it not for sheer, unearned, and wholly undeserved privilege, the dumb luck of being a white boy in a car with other white boys, members of a Catholic high school's well-regarded football team, in a quiet, upscale suburb where crime was almost non-existent, we would not be having this conversation in our living room. And that, I said, was not a reason for relief. 
It was a reason for shame. If you were black or Latino, or if you'd strayed across some imaginary line into another neighborhood, I said, you'd be calling home from jail. Still, I didn't really get it. Again, for white people like me who consider themselves people of goodwill, who think of themselves as fair-minded, who really don't want to think of themselves as racists or participants in a system built to benefit them at the expense of others, race is a subject we would like to avoid much of the time. Savala Trepsinski observes that white Americans' ability to approach and avoid confronting issues of race as it suits us, quote, is a significant part of America's problem with race. But it's getting harder to ignore the reality of my whiteness as the social structure in which I dwell erupts in pain over and over again. I know I am white now, and I know about my whiteness. What to do with that knowledge is my problem to struggle with, not something for people of color to explain to me or mediate for me. But one thing I understand now is this. If my son had not been shielded by his whiteness the night he was caught playing pranks with a paintball gun, I probably would not have gotten a phone call from jail. I'd have had to drive to the morgue. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Here's a Thought with Jan M. Flynn. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so wherever you get your podcasts and share the show with your friends. And if you're able to leave a positive review or a star rating, that really helps the show build an audience. So until next time, be well, be kind to yourself, and may all your thoughts be good ones. <laughs>